everyone. My name is Christian, and welcome back to Throughline, the podcast where we try to find the concept in non-concept albums. This is our 10th episode, more than 10 hours of content and scores of hours of work, and I've got no plans to slow down. In fact, hopefully, we may even be able to speed up in the future. Not on releasing episodes, God, no, I have a full-time job, you animals, but on social media, marketing, all the good stuff to help grow our lovely little podcast. But seeing as we've hit such a milestone, now at a mark that nearly 50% of all podcasts never have reached, it's time to start including some shout-outs to our podcast partners. This is not a solo endeavor, after all. Well, making the episodes mostly is, but this podcast would not exist without the connection and support of quite a number of people. So let's start doing better, thanking them. I promise it'll only take a few seconds of your time each episode, but it'll make a world of difference to share the support between all of us here. First of all, Throughline is a proud member of the Pantheon Podcast Network, a podcast group of approaching 100 different shows, all dedicated to music lovers, and home of the first HD Lossless podcast. They're also the ones helping sponsor our trek out to Nick Mason's Saucerful of Secrets in October, which I'll talk about in a little bit. But second, and most of all, we wouldn't exist if it weren't for the support and platform of Audio Judo. Co-hosted by my dad Matthew and his friend Kyle with audio engineering by Randy, it explores albums from a perspective of shared history and music discovery. You can check them out at audiojudo.com. All right, well, all well and good, you say. Thank you for the info. You are a font of worthwhile information. But what the hell are we talking about today? Country music, damn it. We're talking about country music, and specifically, we're talking about Garth Brooks, and super specifically, we're talking about the 1991 chart-topping hit, Rope in the Wind. Hey, all the neighbors and lights came on last night, just like they do every time, why? Have a little fight. If you wanted to hear me say no fences, the Audio Judo family has already covered it. Episode 41 of Audio Judo, 67 minutes of history and stories and jokes. So go check that episode out if you're looking for that album. But if you're still sticking around, I don't have a wonderful connection to country music. I've always been pretty unfairly unkind to it, so this was an interesting exploration for me. It's another of the genres I typically tend to avoid, following R&B from a couple albums back, and it will not be the last time I encounter a style that I'm partial against. But let's focus on this one for now. What is Rope in the Wind? Well, it's Garth Brooks' third studio album, released in 1991 to Capitol Nashville Records and resounding success. While No Fences is arguably the bigger hit, Rope in the Wind was actually the first album of Garth's to debut at number one on the U.S. Billboard 200, and actually not only that, but was the first country album ever to debut at number one. It's a country album through and through, and it cemented Garth Brooks' place in the echelons of country, pop, and really all music in general, exponentiating an already successful career. The album hit number one on, obviously, the U.S. Billboard 200, but also the U.S. country album chart, the Canadian country chart, and also just generally in Zimbabwe. Multiple singles also saw pretty successful chart rankings, helping buoy its success to sell over 15 million copies and be certified a whopping 14 times platinum in the US, 5 times platinum in Canada, and 1 times platinum in Australia. So it goes to show that 
I have been wildly unfair to this entire genre because holy hell is there a massive amount of popularity here. It really is unbelievably rare for something that is so popular to be bad, regardless of what haters think, myself included. The album did not somehow, though, win the Grammy for that year, but it did win the Country Music Awards Album of the Year, so there's that. Now, if you don't know who Garth Brooks is, well, he's a country boy. Well, arguably, he's not just any country boy, but his genre is definitely indisputable. He was a pretty substantial pioneer in blending rock and pop into country, which is absolutely directly responsible for many modern variations of country. But beyond all of that, he's the best-selling solo artist in the United States of all time, selling an unreal 170 million albums, which eclipses the police from last episode, being about one album per 40 people in the world, having won two Grammys, a slew of country music awards, and being the only artist to have nine albums go diamond status in the US, the Beatles only had six, you'd think that he'd be totally able to just up and retire at this point. But no, instead, he just keeps adding to his now 16 studio albums, the latest released in 2020, and continues touring and playing shows. At 60 years old, it's still likely that there's going to be more left in his tank before he finally hangs up his hat. He's played six official tours with over 700 shows, the latest of which being one of the highest grossing tours of the decade. These are unreal numbers, and I'm honestly floored by all of the information that I found researching this. This is a massive genre, much bigger than I expected, and I hope you'll all join me in exploring something that's new to me, and hopefully is new to some of you as well. So that's the siren call to start the episode, but it's still off in the distance. We have some fun, quick, fun things to talk about. We brought it up in the last episode, but it's getting closer and getting ever more relevant. On Thursday, October 20th in Denver, Colorado, I will be manning a booth at a concert experience where you'll get the chance to meet me and also, in bigger news, get to see Nick Mason, the drummer of Pink Floyd, with his Saucerful of Secrets band. And that's even not all. Our parent network, Pantheon Podcasts, as an official partner to the tour, is hosting live podcaster interaction at a majority of the concerts on the Echoes tour starting this month. Even here in Denver, you won't just get to meet me, but also Matthew from Audio Judo and Corey from Song Facts. Tickets for other shows can be found at saucerfulofsecrets.com, as well as the tour dates and other information. But what kind of opportunity would this be if I didn't have a little secret, a little twist? In coordination with Pantheon Podcasts, we are giving away an exclusive VIP experience to see Nick Mason's Saucerful of Secrets. This is not something you have to buy. This is a giveaway experience that starts with front row seats and just freaking escalates. Private, exclusive merch tables with exclusive merch, site-specific perks like priority entrance, and a pick-shaped necklace carved down from some of Nick Mason's own symbols. Head to pantheonpodcasts.com slash nickmason or check the show notes after listening to get in on the opportunity. And don't forget to get tickets now at saucerfulofsecrets.com. Please bring me your thoughts on Pink Floyd. I want to hear how right or how wrong I was. And, of course, now that I've exhausted myself thoroughly, let's get right into it with this week's episode of Throughline covering Garth Brooks's Rope in the Wind. Oh, 
call me a maverick. Guess I ain't too diplomatic. I just never been the kind to go along. Just avoiding confrontation. So I've got to admit some amount of hypocrisy at the start of this episode. It's a fairly common trend on Throughline that one of the main enemies of fair judgment or perspective is being reductive. Through stereotype, genre, typecasting, etc., the removal of depth from something is a refusal to acknowledge that things are more than their category, and as such fails to accurately represent what something is or what it is trying to do. Few things are only an amalgamation of the tired tropes of their respective category, and even the ones that are are even more rarely a 100% identical presentation to another. So when I say that I've been hypocritical, it is under the false assumption that all country music is the same. And as such, with my general dislike of the standard tropes of country music, no country music is worth my time. Since starting this podcast, I have noticed myself more and more with gut reactions to specific musical styles, country included, which involve immediately changing the radio station, rolling my eyes, instantly poking fun at the style. This is entirely unfair to the genre, especially considering the country timbre has managed to extend out into a veritable family tree of its own, mixing into nearly every other genre to become less of a genre and more of a musical family, similar to how animation and movies is not so much a genre as it is a style. And the worst part of this is how proud I felt to have this opinion, as if hating something at least decently popular was somehow a likable or interesting character trait. Being dismissive, being reductive, made me feel like I had power over the genre and its listeners, no matter how toxic that may have truly been. Only recently, by branching out into new musical styles and subsequently new ways of thinking, new realizations about myself granted by diverse music, only recently have I started to view this as counter-conducive to a healthy and measured relationship relationship to the world around me. Being a hater was more isolating than it was ego-stroking. People are allowed to like things that I don't have an affinity for, and not necessarily vibing with something doesn't mean that I am adding to the conversation by loudly announcing and likely exaggerating my disinterest. I have regret for adopting this state for so long, and am committed to working to create a more positive environment around me, however imperfect and inconsistent that growth may be. And I bring this up because this album, Rope in the Wind, is an album that is both an incredible surprise to someone who routinely dismissed country as the same old bland schlock, and one that is deeply personal and filled with a mixture of tragic flaw, regret, and a desire to be better, even if not necessarily easy. The last song is a whole-ass treatise to make the most of your time on the earth, taking chances and making changes that may seem terrifying at first. So don't you sit upon the shoreline and say you're satisfied. Choose to chance the rapids and dare to dance the tide. So don't you sit upon the shoreline and say you're satisfied. Choose to chance the rapids and dare to dance the tide. 
As straightforward as this line may seem, the album itself is filled with complication and contradiction and a texture that I found illuminating and humbling. It's also just a whole hell of a lot of fun. So how did we get here? The album is only 10 songs, one of the shorter that we've covered, but it encompasses such a large overarching idea. But also, most of the songs are stories about individuals or families or relationships, incredibly close looks at life that almost seem too magnified to abstract. So what gives? Well, let's break down each individual idea from above, focused first on the tragic flaw. Now, the term tragic flaw is typically used to describe a literary concept whereas a character has some defining personality trait that is what ultimately leads to their narrative downfall, the spark that ignites their tragedy. A character's alcohol addiction, or inability to turn down a fight, or sarcastic nature. The most prominent example of this idea in Rope in the Wind comes from Rodeo. Now, Rodeo is, on its surface, a pretty fun song. This is the most stereotypically country song on the album, with countless references to the accoutrement of the Rodeo contestants, the boots and chaps, cowboy hats, spurs, and latigo. Even his already pretty prominent southern drawl on this song feels exaggerated in a way, blending into the rocking, twangy hit of the backing music to form a high-energy experience that's meant to live up to that big experience that rodeo tends to be for its crowd. The song, for the most part, plays this desire for competition from the main character as more of a desire to be great, a passion that is almost admirable, but that is another key trait of many tragic flaws. At first, the flaw doesn't seem to be all that bad. It's only over time when the other shoe, or rather boot in this case, drops that its damaging nature comes into focus. And focus it does in the bridge. And he'll sell off everything he owns just to pay to play a game. And a broken home and some broken bones is all he'll have to show. For all the years that he spent chasing this dream they call Rodeo. And a broken home and some broken bones is all he'll have to show for all the years that he spent chasing this dream they call Rodeo. Holy shit. We've had plenty of songs in the past that have lines that recontextualize the rest of the song, or even parts of the rest of the album, but we have not really seen a song so far do such a hard 180. Already, we're starting to uncover an album that exists in the gray, exploring the conflict between action and consequence and the aftermath of a decision built on passion that dies because of the failure of that singular focus. In Lonesome Dove expands on this further by presenting a story of loss and vengeance that isn't entirely sure whether or not its end is justified. The description of the son of the man killed having an angel's heart and a devil's hand implies an individual who wants to better the world, but through questionable means. Blood letting blood in a way that the song seems to have a bit of a mixed stance on. And even further, Papa Loved Mama in the earlier half of the album is a playful song that seems on the brink of trying to promote sympathy for 
a man murdering his wife for her countless affairs before actively including a bridge that again brings that flaw front and center, showing the gruesome scene in a way that is so overly violent that it's impossible to even try to justify. Take a listen. Oh, the picture in the paper showed a scene real well. Pop was big as buried in the local motel. The desk clerk said he saw it all real clear. He never had the brakes and he was shifting here. I mean, this guy ran a tractor trailer through a motel room wall with incredibly intentional speed. And this is where this idea of regret comes in. While a good number of the songs on the album take a position of exploring issues in a relationship or situation that involve some aspect of one of the characters leading to ruin or permanent harm, three or four of the songs express some element of regret in how the character acted before and a longing to be better. In Burning Bridges, for example, there is an element of the tragic flaw, someone who has a fear of commitment that leads to them abandoning anyone that might get or be too close. Every time the chance comes, another bridge goes down. The character can't help themselves, but the difference between this and Rodeo is that in this song, the character knows that this is a problem. They know that this is likely going to lead to some impossible situation in the future that will have only been solved by keeping some element of companionship in his life. And again, in the bridge, this is made clear. I'll be standing at a river, staring out across tomorrow. And the bridge I need to get there will be a bridge that I have burned. I'll be standing at a river, staring out across tomorrow. And the bridge I need to get there will be a bridge that I have burned. The bridges in this album have some absolutely banger lines, but there's a question that's just begging to be answered. Why do all of the bridges in this album have some major reveal that completely undermines the tone of the rest of the song, bringing new light and information that causes such consternation? Well, to break this down a bit, we need to look a little at the history of the bridge in general. Bridges have been around since classical music was just regular music, and were primarily used as methods to connect multiple different musical ideas with an interpolation section, one that blends or marries the two as transition, or used as a way to mask a key change or modulation that would have been jarring as an immediate transition. A variety tool, its purpose is meant to create complexity in standard musical form. And with the modern ABAB songwriting system of verse, chorus, verse, chorus, it adds a much needed break to the flow that helps pad out runtime or add a new interesting musical element without the rest of the song getting stale. Now, this seems pretty straightforward, and it may seem a bit mundane to even mention. It's pretty common knowledge that bridges tend to be musically different and often contain lyrics that are harder hitting or more evocative than the rest of the song. So what is the point of bringing it up as such an important part of the album? Now, you may be forgiven for believing that this is a rather non-unique idea to focus on, because typically it would be, and even in this album, these bridges are expected, if a little more surprising than typical at times. But this trope intention and exaggeration is actually largely the point of them. 
their typicality is their importance because the overall goal of the album is to show actual complexity, true contradiction in human nature, and there's no better way to do so than to stick with the musical trend that commonly shows contradiction. No matter the tone of the rest of the song, and no matter the feeling evoked by the music or swinging accent of Garth himself, there's an element of uncertainty introduced in each bridge that makes it unclear what is right and what is wrong. And this feeling, this almost futility, is highlighted in the album name, Rope in the Wind. Typically, when performing a lasso maneuver, the goal is to catch something. Used as a herding or hunting skill in the days long past, it has since been gamified in rodeo shows and other festival-type grounds to become more of an entertainment skill than a strictly pragmatic one, but it has still been consistent with being largely concerned with wrangling. However, there is one major thing that is pretty much impossible to capture with a lasso, or really with anything, the wind. The ethereal movement of air from one pressure zone to another, a mysterious force that is an essential aspect of life, but one that exists beyond control. It can be fabricated, but true wind is not able to be captured. As soon as it is jarred, it is merely air, unmoving and unremarkable. As such, the term roping the wind refers to an attempt to grasp at an idea that is unknowable. In no small terms, an attempt to understand something that is not understandable. It is often difficult to know what the right thing to do in a situation is. And even if the idea is something tangible, missing means that all you have left within your grasp is air, wind that will disappear in an instant. So this is a pretty depressing album title, right? The album artwork even has Garth himself standing alone in an empty blue field, in as much of a brood as a country boy can be. But just as much as humans are imperfect and flawed, they are also defiant and hopeful. And that's where the album finds itself from beginning to end. This is its through line, and there is no better way to really uncover the story of the album's attempt to fluidly show the complexity and contradiction of the imperfect desire to change when faced with one's own flaws than to break down the album track by track. So rather than find a few songs to illustrate my point, then do that, we're going to do that now. Starting with song one, as always, Against the Grain. If Columbus had complied, this old world might still be flat. Nothing venture, nothing gain. Sometimes you got to go against the grain. This song is incredibly self-indulgent. It's one of the only songs on the album with sizable music breaks, and it's fast-paced, frenetic, and full of layered, textured musicality. I mean, just take a listen to its middle break. The premise of the song is basically implying exactly what its title does, to go against the grain. In other words, be unique and fight back against conformity. 
following your own instincts, your own heart, rather than follow like a bunch of sheep. The song even goes so far as to reiterate a fairly common expression in Nothing Ventured, Nothing Gained, a near synonym to No Pain, No Gain, that essentially argues that there is no achieving success without enduring some level of risk or failure. On the surface, this is not a bad thing to encourage. Taking an approach to life that values identity and individualism over categorical templates is noteworthy and both helps promote diversity as well as promote critical dialogue. If the same ideas of who we are and what we do are left unchanged, then there is no path to remedy any injustice or bolster any good fortune. But that element of self-indulgence does not just extend through the music alone, merely a way to flex the band's talent. Instead, the song has lyrics that almost border on narcissism, making reference to great legends or icons of days since past in comparison to himself and the way he handles being a maverick. These comparisons include Christopher Columbus, John Wayne, and Noah, three technically rebellious figures in history that do in some way showcase some of the traits Garth is singing about, but it's almost like saying you promote scientific inquiry and have done a bit of science yourself, just like Einstein, Neil deGrasse Tyson, and Pythagoras. The singer is presenting this idea as simply true. You must be willing to go against popular opinion to leave a legacy without any consideration for an alternative. Now, this is a little bit unfair to the song for an important reason, but we'll re-examine that shortly. The main idea to take away at this point, however, is that the main idea so far in the album is one of a type of unabashed confidence, untempered by any doubt, singular in its focus that is 100% correct in its aim. And you really need not look any further than Rodeo to learn that this perspective very quickly reframes itself as satire. Just as much as against the grain, Rodeo for the most part seems very very sure of itself. With the way that Garth sings the choruses, how can there be any doubt that the rodeo is just very cool and the boy's passion for perfecting the craft is admirable? Just take a listen to his croon. It's the roar of the Sunday crowd, he'll win the next go-round. It's hard not to want to root for him, but as the song goes on, the verses start to really weigh on the tone, and it's only by about chorus two that something seems a bit unstable. The first chorus said he'd win the next time, but the second chorus does not change this line. He still hasn't won yet, and the bridge immediately comes after. We've talked about this already, this moment in the song that essentially sabotages itself. There had been hints before, this is not something completely out of left field. The boy's partner witnesses his eyes cold and restless in the first verse, wishing he would already give it up, to then her attempts to fight against that desire that controls him in verse 2, and finally his final descent to insanity as he fuels this addiction to his goal in a way that leads to the end of his marriage, his home, and his livelihood. How can it be that the thing he was so passionate about, the thing that others told him not to keep doing, the thing that he felt in his heart was right, 
would lead to so much ruin and pain, especially when just one song before, Garth very openly encourages people to have that passion in spite of others. Well, because as we noted, the album is not working on a surface level. It is working here as satire instead, and further, a much bigger, more overarching story about change. Against the Grain has a very important twist to the lyrics that puts into perspective its somewhat tricky nature and its duplicity. The word sometimes. It's an easy word to miss, honestly, because it hampers the sentiment in the same way that adding just hurts the phrase I need you to listen. It's easy to just not hear the word in the song and take the meaning as intense as it seems. The word is used five times in the song, once before every single iteration of You've Got to Go Against the Grain, and once more in verse one. So what does this mean for our album then, and the fight we were so ready to adopt? Well, it's fairly clear that Against the Grain is less about being contrarian for the sake of being contrarian, fighting battles just to be rebellious, but instead about picking your battles and choosing to fight when it's the right thing to do. Now, it argues that choosing not to stand up or stand out ever for the fear of uncertainty is not ideal either, but the important thing to learn from sometimes is that wanting something too much is likely just as harmful. And so, Garth immediately shows that consequence in Rodeo, and in what she's doing now, it could be argued that we get our first glimpse at the beginning of someone on the mend from a runaway ego. Last I heard she had moved to Boulder, but where she's now, I don't know. Though it's unlikely, this song could even be a continuation of the story from Rodeo, a small glimmer of regret in the breaks between attempting that competition over and over again. Interestingly, this is the first slow song on the album, one where the character is reminiscing over a lost love and even going so far as to attempt to call them up again, only to learn that of the people at her old number, no one knew her name. Just take a listen to the longing in this chorus. What she's doing now is This is also our first look at a theme regarding love, romance, or connection, different from the future focus of the first two songs. This is a glimpse at a desire for the present rather than a longing to leave a legacy. But she's forever gone from him, and it's tearing him apart. Our first true look at weakness in the character of this album. The transformation hasn't quite stuck yet, however, as he still downplays his true heartbreak by minimizing what would likely be a pretty awkward and difficult call if she actually picked up by saying it was just for laughs to reach out. Yeah, sure, okay, buddy. And the character still has a bit of growing to do, as seen clearly in Burning Bridges. Yesterday she thanked me for oiling that front door. This morning when she wakes, she won't be thankful anymore. 
If we want to continue the trend of looking at the last few songs as a single story, this would likely be the point where that heartbreak from before has manifested into a bit of a self-destructive cycle, breaking his ability to commit and detonating connections, or burning bridges, the instant it starts to reach a turning point that he may not be able to return from without the same level of heartbreak. If we don't want to continue this trend, well, it just shows another individual with a tragic flaw as we described before. This fear of commitment is fairly common in people with a bit of a healthy ego, one similar to the first reading we saw of Against the Grain. This is typically disguised as a desire to remain independent, but this independence is fraught with the risk of isolation in times of need, as the song points out. But the main character doesn't want to continue this way. There's a hope for change in the song that we have yet to see. So far, it's been satire and subtext, the things that went wrong, but for the first real time, we see a desire for change. What I'm doing can't be undone And I'm always hoping someday I'm gonna stop this running around But every time the chance comes up I'm always hoping someday I'm going to stop this running round. Just as much as Garth points out in the first song, there can't be change unless there's a desire for it. Now, the next song, Papa Loved Mama, is in a bit of a weird spot. Papa drove a truck nearly all his life. You know it drove Mama crazy being a trucker's wife. The part she couldn't handle was being alone. I guess she needed more to hold than just a telephone. We've shown what change involves. We've shown consequences of an overblown sense of confidence and lack of focusing on the present. We've shown regret, and we've shown a hope for change albeit a little bit soured by doubt. This song isn't really a logical follow-up. It doesn't really have a lot of subtext, mostly being about how a relatively good person can be pushed to do unfathomably awful things in response to another's own insecurity, i.e. murdering your wife with a truck for cheating on you. But if we really want to get Pixar theory-level conspiracy on the show, the perspective of the song is really peculiar. It's told from the point of view of one of the children. Could this be our character from the previous three songs? Well, there's nothing to say why not, and it goes to explain some of the difficulties the character has had. Why he focused more on his passion than his relationship. Why he had trouble sticking around after his heartbreak, choosing to end things before they got bad lest he suffer a similar heartbreak or even commit a similar crime. One of the most difficult things to unlearn is that which carries over down the generations from our parents and from theirs on and on. This flashback then immediately follows his first step to change, the knowledge that he needs to and the hope that he will, with that added vision of knowing it's possible he'll need someone when he has no one. The focus has shifted away from the rodeo, in fact we'll never hear about it again in the album. It has shifted from a desire for a legacy and changed into a yearning for a fulfilled life, one not alone. And in the back half we start to see a shift in the tone of the album. From regret and tragedy and flaw, we instead start to shift into love, longing, and, well, still flaw, but a different kind, a more natural kind. I'll explain in a second. But that shift is no better exemplified than by Shameless.
Whoa, man. Garth Brooks has got a set of lungs on him. This is just an absolute spectacle of a song, loud and almost straining under its own weight. Garth's voice reaches a level of growl and power that seems to threaten his ability to even endure the song. There's a vitality here that shadows even the most frantic song in the first half. And it's also the second use of a female singer, the first being Burning Bridges. That itself threads a connection between the character's desire for change and the instance he's able to make it a reality. A key feature of this song is the character's constant reference to the pride that he used to have. This creation of self-confidence, of an unshakable belief in his own ideals, immune to any outside judgment. I'm not a man who's ever been insecure about the world I'm living in. But the second half of that key defining feature is that he also points out that his love for her has completely cracked that mindset. Take a listen to the bridge. I work too hard to call my life my own And I've made myself a world and it's worked so perfectly But it's your world now I can't refuse I've never had so much to do and I've made myself a world, and it's worked so perfectly, but it's your world now. I can't refuse. I've never had so much to lose. It's even in the way he sings. There's a gruffness in the acknowledgement of his creation that softens, works its way out of his voice as he shouts out his love instead. His character has changed, and is now capable of further change. Verse 4, immediately following the bridge and guitar solo, another rare instance, has him point out that it takes a strong man to say he's sorry and admit when he's wrong. This growth is not just an instrument of love, it was a desire to be better, to focus more on what mattered that led to redefining what it meant to be strong, and subsequently allowing more progression in the future. And Cold Shoulder is a seemingly simple song that follows that allows a moment of reconciliation with a ghost of his past and the literal or metaphorical death of his parents. The snow is piled high on highway tonight. I'm a ship lost at sea. There's a bright candle-like warmth to the song that feels innocent and tender, like it's being shielded from the storm that he, now as a trucker, is caught in, away from home and the love that burned so brightly and shameless. As we know through Papa Loved Mama, his father was a trucker, away from home often and for long periods of time. This itself is the conflict that started the issue with Mama, who was itching from him being away from home for so long. This song is in a bit of a dialogue with this moment. The first verse has the main character fantasizing about his wife at home, tasting her lips and being embraced by her. But the choruses are bleak and show the situation he currently exists in. An interesting note, however, is the use of the phrase cold shoulder. Now normally, this means the act of being intentionally dismissive, akin to the silent treatment most often used as a method of retaliation for some argument, disagreement, 
or offense. As such, in this context, it feels almost strange. Is the cold shoulder his own that he's attempting to embrace to fend off the cold, like holding your own hand? Or should we be reading this as metaphor? Is this a downturn in the relationship and he merely feels alone and trapped in a metaphorical blizzard? The tone is relatively tense, despite the song's soft music and timbre. We even get a callback to the same verbiage used by Rodeo to describe its control over the character, personifying the event, the rodeo in that song, and the road in this song as being almost femme fatales. This verse is the one that does the most to complicate the narrative making it really unclear whether it's literal or metaphorical. But the key feature of this verse is the fact that the character actively makes an effort to resist the obsessive, isolating nature of the road calling it out as a mistress that keeps me from the ones I love. No matter what happens in the relationship from this point, this is not the same person that lost his relationship to his obsession before. He's managed to control the obsession, and he is not the same person to go down that dark path as his father. And as if to assuage our fears of an impending disaster or heartbreak, we get the much sillier and upbeat Bury the Hatchet. This song is not seemingly simple. It's just simple. It's fun, and that's its main goal. More than anything else, this song is used to show a realistic relationship, one imperfect but with an undercurrent of playful love. This is the different kind of flaw that I was talking about earlier. While the lyrics are a bit unstable in the way they portray the longevity of the relationship with lines like, it's getting to the point we can't get along, it's hard to listen to the song and not hear it rimming with life and an almost joking nature. Hey, we got enough on each other To wage a false scale more we could ever Hey, we got enough on each other to wage a full-scale war if we could ever remember what we were fighting for. It's getting to the point in modern times that there's a bit of a pushback on the narrative that a healthy relationship is one that has routine arguments. But at the time this album came out, that was still very much the feeling. A healthy mix of disagreement believed to help solidify connection and compromise. This is the first arguably fun song since Papa Loved Mama, and only the fourth out of eight with the first two being Against the Grain and Rodeo. However, this is the first fun song that shows a semi-decent relationship. The needle has turned from rebelliousness and obsession to a morbidly bright take on a bad situation as a coping mechanism to an actual future, a realistic push and pull in a loving relationship. This is growth. It's imperfect, but it's growth. And this is also the end of the main character's story. From Rodeo to here, we retire this character and instead move on to a new story that attempts to condense this narrative down into one song, almost like a summary in Lonesome Dove. Back to back with the Rio Grande, the Christian woman in the devil's land. She learned the language and she learned to fight, but she never learned how to be the lonely night. This is the painters of Rope in the Wind. As a brief retelling of the story of this song, a woman in Wild West times finds her group's caravan struggling, only to be saved by a lone ranger. She ends up marrying him and living in his small town, but one day he leaves to take care of a threat 
and never comes home, so she cares for their young son alone, and he grows to follow in his father's footsteps, before word comes in of the whereabouts of who killed his father. A confrontation then occurs, and it is believed that he is the one to dispatch the killer, but there is a rumor that it was actually the woman protecting her son. Though no one knows who held the gun, there ain't no doubt if you ask someone. If we connect this back to the previous story, we get a man who had been on his own, working hard under his own rules, who fell for a woman that he then gave everything to. Following a tragic event, however, it ended up breaking her, causing her to turn into herself and never manage to truly move on from grief. Her son grew up with vengeance in his bones, but not wanting to drop the cycle of violence another generation, she took care of it herself in an act of bloody selflessness. There are obvious parallels to the other story here, but they're reorganized and moved around and apply to different characters. This may seem like it doesn't fit, but it's more of an effort to show how these stories of imperfect growth in the face of tragic flaws can manifest. The main point is a reiteration of that idea that change is both of generational and personal importance to lead to a better life in the face of greater odds. And this is the final change. This growth is cemented and packaged in the final song, The River. You know a dream is like a river Ever changing as it flows And the dreamer's just a vessel That must follow where it goes this song could be seen as a bit cliche, but really it's a much more measured response song to Against the Grain. The story has wrapped around to itself, a conversation on taking charge and living a full life. But rather than encourage rebellion and a reliance on instinct, this song encourages balance. While verse 2 does have reference to taking risk and trusting yourself with lines like choose to chance the rapids and dare to dance the tide, verse 1 argues for letting the tide of fate take control and allowing some things to happen and pass as they may for a dreamer's just a vessel that must follow where it goes. There is something to be said here about picking one's battles, because fighting everything and everyone leads to the isolation from the first half of the album, the tragedy of burning bridges and breaking connections with everyone around you. But fighting for nothing leads to a similar fate. The true solution is to have a connection. There's bound to be rebel waters, and I know The road ahead is long and arduous, and as committed as we might be to change and growth, bad things will still happen. Through our focus on our love and present, however, we can find the strength to overcome it. He uses God and religion here, but the same goes for love, family, and community. You just have to be willing to set aside pride and work toward that togetherness. And so we depart with this message from Rope in the Wind, an album about legacy and about community, where one is like roping the wind, nearly impossible and likely pointless, and another is about learning to let others in. Let ego go and accept that life is difficult and will be difficult, but that constant fighting is exhausting and can lead to despair or demise. 
our flaws are a part of what makes us who we are, but they do not have to be what defines us. Learning to accept that you are not perfect is one of the best first steps to growing into a more well-rounded and loving individual, and there is no greater fun and joy in life than to be shameless for the ones we love. Stick around after the break for a quick conversation about the album. Christian here. Yes, it's still through line. You haven't been bamboozled, but where's the little sound thingy? Where's the conversation, the juicy dialogue? Don't worry, I have it queued up, my fingers hovering over the button, or, well, my cursor is ready to drag it in when I edit this together later. But before all of the conversing hullabaloo, I finally got a taste of every podcaster's greatest opportunity a promo code, and also, I guess, the ability to talk about a product they're actually excited about. Or, well, it's both a service and a product. One of the biggest problems that I have with putting together this whole throughline package is knowing how to give the people what they want. Which musicians to cover, how funny I should be, if I should start a TikTok. But one thing that the people often want from a business or project or property they're passionate about is merch. And what better way to personalize your merch than with stickers? Sticker Mountain is an online experience that is dedicated to delivering you the best stickers and labels so that you can sell your products, grow your business, and focus on your passions. Simple interactive interfaces, competitive prices, and a support team that has the same passion and attention to detail as if they were right down the road from you come together into a package that's damn near impossible to beat. With tons of material options and bulk discounts on bigger orders, it's something that even I can't resist, and frankly, I'm a bit of an analysis nerd if you couldn't tell yet. Their color matching is a highlight and something they pride themselves on, and for good reason. At Sticker Mountain, you'll find everything you need to get the product labels, merch stickers, and more onto your booths, into your stores, and into the hands of your customers. And by listening to this podcast, you've unlocked a special reward. For a limited time, you can use the code THROUGHLINE2022, all lowercase, to get 10% off your next order at StickerMountain.com. Make the most of it. Stock up. I can personally attest to the quality and care that goes into each order, and I'm confident you'll be excited you looked them up too. Go see what they have at StickerMountain.com and use the code THROUGHLINE2022 for that lovely, lovely discount. Now, for all y'all that stuck around, time to hit that funny little sound button. Hey everyone, welcome back to Throughline. We just got done going over the breakdown of the album, and now we're going to have a quick conversation about what the artist, fans, and others have said about the album. And with me today, I have Garth Brooks fan and special guest, my mom, Heather. How's it going? Hello, it's good. It's a pleasure having you on. I've had a lot of family members on the podcast so far. <laughs> well, of course, you know, go to those you know. Right. I was nervous about covering country because I've never been a big country fan, just as much as dad hasn't been a huge country fan. I'm sorry for that. <laughs> it's just the accent. There's something about accents and music that I've never been able to fully get into. But this album was really interesting. And I wanted to start off kind of the way that I always start off these sections and just ask, how did you get into Garth Brooks in the first place? So different than your upbringing, my, I guess, musical encouragement really definitely was based around country music. It's not the only thing that my parents listened 
listen to, but definitely a large portion of what I was exposed to when I was a child was country music. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we're talking old country, George Jones, George Strait, Johnny Cash. And then, you know, there was Bee Gees thrown into the mix here and there and, and a lot of what was popular at the time, but certainly a lot of country music. And Garth Brooks was later mm -hmm. in that, you know, my growing up, but I attached to him immediately when I started hearing his music. And it's funny because like you said, the accents of music or the twang in country music, mm -hmm. Garth hardcore has it. Right. Yeah, absolutely. All country, <laughs> all the time. You hear it in every song and it could be really off-putting. But I think that for me, it was always just, you know, when you're watching a sport or you're watching an actor and they just exude this confidence and this passion and this love for what they're doing. Sure. I hear that in everything that he does. And I've seen him in concert multiple times and he just loves what he does. He loves that he has the opportunity to share his gift with the world. And I think that that's what draws me to him. That was definitely one of the things that I noticed the most when doing the research for this section is that he's incredibly and surprisingly down to earth, like a yes. lot more than you would expect from the normal common modern place conception of what country music stars are. Absolutely. It's not commercial. It's truly just what he loves. Right. What's interesting about him, though, is that while he did have a lot of that country or twang in the beginning, it was mostly that first album and he started going a little bit less of really exaggerated accent and was one of the main pioneers of mixing country and rock and pop. So I don't know if you're familiar with Chris Ledoux, but Chris Ledoux was one of Garth's major influences mm -hmm. and he's very country and they actually did some songs together and unfortunately Chris is no longer with us, but right. he definitely references back to him and he has a ton of different influences, but that was one of his country, he who encouraged him along the way. Sure. And that is old country. So it's kind of this evolution of taking all of the different influences across those people that he loves. And I listened to the Garth channel on Sirius XM because right. he plays all of those people who have influenced him or intrigued him or he respects or he just loves to listen to because it brings him joy on that station mixed in along with his music and it is really interesting to see a perspective of what he loves and what does bring him those ideas and 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 I think you're right like with that there's an evolution from this old time country that we grew up with to the interweaving of rock and pop sure because it's not just one genre that he has on there yeah there's a quote from a review by all music that says that some might say that the those rock influences are what make Brooks a crossover success, but he wouldn't be nearly as successful if he didn't have a tangible country foundation to his music. Absolutely. Even when he comes close to standard arena rock bombast, there are gritty steel guitars or vocal inflections that prove he is trying to expand the country's vocabulary, not trying to exploit it. Yeah, I think that's a good description. And I think what is so important about the respect that he has for the genre, and it's really less of a 
genre now and more of a style. Country has cast its net into basically every other genre that you can possibly imagine. Absolutely. Country rock, country pop, country EDM, whatever you can think of, there's a country version of it. Yeah, I think it gives a little bit more flavor mm-hmm. because of the expanse, the, the direction that you can go with it and have, like, how do you bring it into a song? It could be a banjo, it could be slide guitar, it could be right. a twang, it could be the cadence of the song. And so I think it does lend to allowing different music styles to have more breath. And there's a lot of conversation on this album because he covered an old bluesy Billy Joel song, Shameless. Yes. I actually didn't even know that. I didn't right. know that that was a Billy Joel song until after I listened to the record like 10 times just to kind of <laughs> get it all in my head. Right. And then I read about that. And that was really interesting because I didn't go back and listen to the Billy Joel version because I just wanted to think in my own head, how would that sound coming out of Billy Joel? You know what I mean? Right. And it's just this desire to experiment and to try other things. There was a lot of talk when the album was coming out. Is this going to be something that's successful? Is this going to be something that's country? And he put in pedal guitars and he has this typical voice, but just the sheer willingness to try something new is such an important feature, I think, of his catalog. Yes, absolutely. In this album... Kind of by itself, I would think, oh gosh, I don't know if you're already a Garth fan or if you're already a country fan, that any one person just picking up this album and turning it on would fall in love with it right away. If you're not a country music aficionado. But this album, I find that this is one of those albums that I have a really emotional connection to it. And it's ironic. It's not because of necessarily the lyrics, not necessarily the meaning of any of the songs but more just the way he delivers it and I find that it's not a great album to listen to while I'm driving because there are multiple times that I like clutch my chest and close my eyes (laughs) right (laughs) and I'm so into it and I can belt this out and I mean nobody wants to hear it but I can certainly (laughs) belt this out and it's just so Mm -hmm. intense and it pulls me in and it's not the word specifically it's just that emotion Emotion, the right. way he delivers it. And dad kind of laughs at me a little bit and also is a little in wonder about it. But whenever we've seen Garth Brooks in concert, a couple of these songs he plays mm-hmm. pretty regularly and they make me cry. I'm like in the stadium right. listening to this music and, you know, all dressed up and out for a good night. And I'm crying through <laughs> half of his concert. And some of them are from these songs. I mean, I get that too. There's plenty of music that I listen to. Music Music connects with me more than anything else to the point where I get more emotional with music than I get with pretty much anything else. I have multiple songs that I go to that are like, I need a moment of peace. I'll listen to this song. I need a moment of relaxation. I'll listen to this song. I need to focus. I'll listen to this song. Music cuts through a lot. And having a singer as powerful as he is, regardless of what he's talking about, it connects. Right. And I mean, that's why he sold so many records. (laughs) Absolutely. You've talked a little bit about how it's less so the lyrics of the music that are so impactful to you, but there is a pretty substantial message in this album that connects thematically throughout. And I was wondering what your reading of the album is, being a fan of the album for quite a long time. To me, this entire album is about love. Mm -hmm. And often that is a common thread in country music. 
you know, it's about tractors and love and beer. And (laughs) this one truly is just love. And it starts with self-love, bettering yourself, being your own person, taking risks, being genuine to yourself. Mm -hmm. And then it goes into one after another song by song. So first one, self-love, second, love lost, then 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 love should be lost, then love lost, and then back to self-love. Right. So it's this over and over, very country music oriented. He writes with a lot of different writers. So it's not just one person. It's not just him by himself always. He collaborates. And yet all of these ended up being love lost type of a situation and looking for something more. And they're all different themed love lost, but they're all looking for maybe it's the mistress that wins out maybe and the mistress could be work. And then there's a song in there, Fold Shoulder, that I think is just incredibly written because it has these mixed metaphors. Yes, absolutely. Gosh, it's so smart. But you also can't really interpret for yourself what his intention is, because it could be that it's the loss of a love to the job because he's just married to his job. But it could be a wanting of a love that is slipping away. Sure. It's incredibly written. One of my favorite songs on the album, believe it or not, and it's not one that I think many would pick out as a favorite, but I just think it's so smartly written. So this whole theme of love all the way through is very typical country, but I think every single song has its own unique approach to that conversation. It's cool that you brought up Cold Shoulder as being this mixed metaphor type work, because in my reading of the album, I've basically Pixar theoried my own version of this strange story that starts in rodeo and ends in bury the hatchet and it's all one singular story of one singular person who was obsessed with something and then their marriage or whatever fell apart because of that obsession but then it gets resolved kind of in an okay place and bury the hatchet this playful joking old school version of a relationship where it's like oh if you're not having arguments it's not a healthy relationship <laughs> and we bury the hatchet like you said it's so fun it gives me a New Orleans vibe, like Mm. just the tempo of the music. Right. It does have that swing. Yeah, it's kind of tongue in cheek. So next is in Lonesome Dove. In Lonesome Dove is like a movie in a song. Right. It's based on a true story, I think. Oh, I didn't know that. I mean, that does follow along with what you were just saying. All of these things happened. And then this is maybe the dream that they have, like literally falling asleep. And this is the dream that they have. This is the way that I wish it could be. Although, I mean, her husband dies. Right. um, (laughs) But then her son, Ben, him. <laughs> well, actually, what I think is super clever about this song is that there is a line at the end of the song that almost implies that she was the one who killed the guy who killed her husband. Mm, it does give a kind of an unknown. I always saw that as a bunch of people were there and the son was there, but it's almost like they don't want to feel like he was a murderer, mm-hmm. but also it was that closure of the outstanding death of the father and the son was able to avenge him but that's a really interesting thought there's such unique texture in this album of a lot of different interpretations of what could be going on and 
he plays into that texture so much. Yeah. Against the Grain feels like a song that would be very, hey, you got to push against conformity and all of this stuff. You like got to be your own maverick and forge your own trail. And it's really easy to forget that there's a single word that's repeated almost all the time in sometimes. And I covered this a little bit in my thing, but he promotes this underlying balance in life right from the get go. And it just completely recontextualizes the song. And he does that in almost every song. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I want to say like Against the Grain, totally different than every other song on here when it mm-hmm. comes to the way it presents itself. I mean, this album starts in a fury. Yes. It is immediately upbeat and energetic and musical. And musical and you're just pulled right in. Yeah. And like I can see this as the it's the middle of the summer, top down on the car or windows rolled down and just smiling and and enjoying the sun and driving fast down the road like that's what this it starts so fast and then it slows down so quick and the way that he writes the way that he composes his albums it doesn't feel like he's purposefully looking for an actual thematic connection between the songs like it doesn't look like he's looking for a true storyline but Mm -hmm. he does compose the album with intention there's a quote from him in his book garth brooks the anthology part one where he says i wanted every one of the albums to have all the ups and downs of a live show that roller coaster it can't be all ballads can't be all story songs can't be all up-tempo swing kind of stuff just like it can't be all humor but you damn sure need all that stuff in its moment yeah definitely just kind of knowing what he had going on in his life and sure yeah i don't know what was going on yeah so this was released in 1991 yeah so for me that was released when i was starting college i was 17 years old it came across this because i was already a garth fan Mm -hmm. after no fences and his previous work and during this time he was married and trisha yearwood was married he met trisha yearwood in 1987 they had um, done some work together and i've heard in interviews that when he first met trisha yearwood he said and i'm not quoting him but he said basically that when he met her he turned to somebody and said i just met my future wife Mm. (laughs) which is ironic right because he was married and he was newly married he was only married at that point for a year year and a half to sandy mall and it was just this spark that came into his life and she was married he was married and they became quick friends and worked together multiple times through the 90s but you kind of wonder with all of this love lost in these songs yeah he's writing with other people and he's not sitting down to create a concept album but you wonder if four years after he met her and they've made this friendship and his immediate reaction when he saw her was this is my future wife like was that part of the tug of war that he had going on in his own mind to say like these are the songs that he's gravitating to because he's battling these thoughts in his own mind. Yeah, that's such a weird parallel to the album itself, too, because you do get the breakup of a relationship in Rodeo and this whole self-destructive cycle that then repairs with a new person that he's like wildly in love with. (laughs) Right. And Rodeo specifically, it's this passion for the game. He absolutely loves and pours his heart into his country music. And this character pours their heart into 
the rodeo, despite the fact that he has a wife at home and he knows that he's impacting that. And I think that his love for country music and Trisha Yearwood's love for country music, those align. Mm -hmm. And so it's almost saying, and again, I'm extrapolating here, but it's almost saying like, I love country music so much that I'm falling away from my relationship. Right. And then down the road, this love for country music that Trisha Yearwood has, they start to merge together and kind of like a river, right? Merging yeah. <laughs> together, meandering together and connecting and going from figuring out who you are as a person in Against the Grain, going towards your passion and the love of the work that you do, mm-hmm. merging together and then finding that at the end of not giving up on your dream. Like, right. It's curious. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It's a definite strange coincidence. Right. If it's a coincidence. <laughs> Unconscious, maybe. Yeah. You know, maybe it was just kind of where he was at and the songs he was choosing possibly could have had some influence from his inner turmoil. Right. It is strange then that he isn't a super specific thematic writer then. I mean, he said countless times that he doesn't release singles because albums are meant to be listened to in their entirety. And I think that's kind of where I want to go from here is that you've always been more into to more popular music, like pop music on the radio and stuff like that, than generally dad has or me. I wanted to pivot a little bit into this conversation that has kind of been happening right now of a lot of people believing that modern music, single focused music, isn't as intentional or isn't as meaningful as older music. Yeah, I get what you're saying. And I think that a lot of that is how we listen to it now. And I'm maybe old school. And a lot of that is in the past, you had two choices. You could buy an album, listen to that whole album over and over again in your CD player or your cassette player, or you could listen to the radio. Mm -hmm. And listening to the radio, you didn't have the choice of your own playlist because it didn't exist. You were listening to a radio that was a rock station, or you were listening to a station that was a country station, and it was old country or new country or whatever. And now it's more bites sized. And so I think that that is kind of the reason why it has evolved. And it isn't necessarily as thematic as it once was, because now you buy an individual track from an album, you're seeking out those individual tracks. And so what's the point of putting a theme together? Right. And Garth Brooks has kind of a thought provoking point on that that I hadn't considered before, where this is an interview with Mark Tucker for Oregon Live. And he's responding to a question from him about just kind of this general topic. And Garth says, you probably grew up on a singles based market like iTunes. I don't know how much you learn about an artist because singles are your safest songs on the records, ones that piss fewer people off that appeal more to the masses. But it's those album cuts where you find out what the artist really believes in, because there's going to be some stuff in there that nobody wants to talk about that ain't going to get played on radio. That's where you're (laughs) going to find out what they truly believe in, what they stand for. Yeah, absolutely. Because it's not just the commercialized track. Right. It's not just the one that's going to sell copies. It's what the artist really truly wants to say and present themselves as. So yeah. Yeah, but it's tough because in the market nowadays, 
it prioritizes single-based things. It prioritizes this idea of getting viral off one thing and spending time on all of this other content that's going to be released less often is hurtful to your brand longevity or your brand consistency. If you can put out singles, you can break up an album of 12 songs into 12 singles and release a single every month. You're going to have more common traction than if you just release an album a year. Yeah, it's almost a dying art because it's not allowing these current artists of, like you said, telling their own story and showing who they are as an artist. It's instead like, how am I going to be able to sell and commercializing it way more than it ever was before? But I think that there's still some good hope on the horizon for new artists. And Garth Brooks seems to agree a little bit. There's another question in that same interview where Mark Tucker asks, what do you think of an artist like Casey Musgraves? I don't know who Casey Musgraves is. She's also a country artist. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) He says, on Follow Your Arrow, she's singing about equality, which is something you were singing about in 1992 on We Shall Be Free, which is itself a really wild thing that I learned about Garth Brooks's discography. The fact that he put out a equality-focused song as a country artist in the early 90s is not something that I was expecting, (laughs) probably unfairly. Yeah, yeah, probably. (laughs) Well, you see, I'm trying not to be super dismissive of country anymore, but like in my earlier thoughts, I was like, oh, well. Well, like I said earlier, everybody makes this blanket assumption that country music is about love tractors and beer right that's not the reality of it but that is the stereotype and so it is hard to you know when you look at the traditional country music what is the perception of it as what are country music fans and who are country music fans and what is going to appeal to those country music fans and it gets some unfortunate attachments like the confederate flag let's say right. and that's unfair but it's yeah. also it also is the maybe Stereotype. The, again the perception yeah you know perception is not always reality because that's the reality right <laughs> but but perception is reality until you learn until you experience something different exactly and if you're not seeking out that something different then that perception is going to stick Right. And I think that's a really important thing to take from this and take from covering Garth Brooks and then take from this conversation about modern music is that it's not really everything that you think. And Garth Brooks is incredibly forward thinking and he really is doing a fantastic job of setting the stage for other artists, which he has done in the past. And his response to the Casey Musgraves thing is super interesting. He says, her stuff is a little more built toward my 17 year old daughter. So her phrases are a little more slang if I may say, or oriented to that age group, where in ours, we would have been very careful to make sure that the words were chosen right. But what I like about her, she shoots from the hip. And that's cool. I dig that. That's what my daughter digs in her stuff is how much she just sings as if not to care what you think of her. She's just going to tell you what she thinks. And those are the beginning steps of great artists of iconic artists. Yeah, that's awesome. I think Casey Musgraves, if I'm not mistaken, she may have been one of the opening acts for either the last concert, the concert before for him. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Setting the stage for other people to build on what you've done is a really awesome thing to do, kind of mixed in with all of the other really cool things he's done for music and for equality and things like that. Yeah. Another thing that I like really encourage everybody to check out, it shows really, truly 
how much of a person he is. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the things that he thinks about the music industry, his excitement for things that he has that are going on or other people have that are going on. He does have a, I think it's weekly segment called Studio G. Mm -hmm. And it's fun to listen to him as a human being. And I don't think you get the behind the curtain look at a lot of artists because a lot of people, they don't have time for it or don't take time for it or don't want to be as vulnerable as what he wants to be because he does want to be a you know leader of his industry. And for all intents and purposes, he is one of the most prolific icons in the country music industry. And I have mad respect for him for that. Right. This whole process is just going to show how unfair I've been to the genre and I think how unfair a lot of people have been to the genre. And hopefully this episode can help change some minds. Yeah, me too. But on that point, it's a good time to end this episode of Throughline. Thank you so much for joining me. Of course, it was a pleasure. And hopefully we'll be able to talk about another album in the future. But until that point, please check out our Facebook or Instagram, all of that kind of stuff. Let us know if you <laughs> like the show. Let us know ideas for upcoming shows and hopefully we'll be able to keep doing this just continuing going forward introducing new music and providing new perspectives so with the end of garth brooks's rope in the wind in this episode of Throughline, line just wanted to say one more thing something we've said in the past i just want to reiterate again hating something is not an interesting personality trait thank you so much for listening <laughs>